How are we, family? Good, good. Uh, if you're a guest uh, with us, welcome. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here. I uh, just want you to know that as a church, we exist to know Jesus and make him known, and so that's our, our hope, our desire, our prayer for each of us this morning. We also uh, want to just let you know that we have a little gift for you if, uh, if you're a guest. There's at this uh, welcome table back here a couple of, there's some coffee mugs with some pens and stuff, and just want to bless you as much as we possibly can as a church, so feel free to, to take that and, and uh, just, yeah, we encourage you to ask any questions that you might have about who we are and, and why we exist, and um, I think actually next Sunday we have something called Newcomer's Coffee, uh, so if you have any questions about Taproot, then uh, you can join us for that after the gathering, and we'd love to answer any questions uh, that you might have. Uh, so where we're at this morning is uh, we're just continuing our way through the Gospel of Matthew, obviously, uh, and we are in this kind of portion of Matthew's gospel, uh, where Matthew's kind of laying out for us some of Jesus's teaching in regards to um, domestic life, if you will. And so we spent the last several weeks working through uh, some of what Jesus had to say in regards to marriage, in regards to divorce and remarriage, uh, in regards to being single, and in regards to sex and sexuality. Um, and then this week, we're moving along to uh, kind of the next logical step, it seems, uh, which is children, um, and seeing what Jesus has to say about children uh, after coming kind of off the heels here of, of what he said about marriage. Next week will be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about uh, money. It's interesting, in, in the Gospels and in, in the teachings of Jesus, there are, um, money is one of the only places that Jesus really gives us any warnings. Uh, so it'll be interesting to kind of work through that, but... This morning, uh, we get these three verses here on Jesus' words on children. Um, It's interesting. When we think through the way that Jesus treated people in general, I think we'd have to assess that it was just extraordinary, right? I think if if we were to just take an honest reading of the Gospels and Jesus' interactions, uh, and we were to be able to just soak in the way that he engaged with humanity. It was, it was really just incredible. And, it, and it, it was to the point that it should be one of the things that m- most draws us to Jesus. Like my, my hope here for you this morning is that, that as followers of Jesus, that you're following Jesus because you're actually compelled by this person. Because he's very compelling. He should draw us to himself. His presence was one that was non-anxious. He was not swayed by the cultural norms or expectations of his day. And that's because his identity and his security were rooted firmly in the love that he regularly experienced from the Father. Jesus was absolutely certain about who he was, and so he didn't have to try to be anything else or anyone else. He, he, he knew clearly Uh, what his purpose was. And thus, what we see in Jesus is that he was always surrounded by the poorest, most marginalized, and rejected people of his society. No matter where Jesus was, no matter where Jesus went, what we would always see is him surrounded by crowds of people who the religious people of his day are always wanting to push to the side. Jesus was continually calling the poor and marginalized to himself. And so on any given day, 
If you were to, to see Jesus, run into Jesus, hear Jesus' teaching, you would see him surrounded by the sexually immoral or the prostitutes. You would see him surrounded by thieves and traitors or the, the tax collectors. You would see him surrounded by the religiously unacceptable, the unclean. And then, of course, you'd also see him surrounded by his disciples, which were a pretty ragtag mixed group of people with all sorts of various backgrounds. And so in our text this morning, this is exactly what we see. We see Jesus engage again with what we would just consider to be the socially unusable, the socially unusable, the little children. And so we've already seen Jesus speak into or, or, or share with us his, his understanding of who children are, right? Remember back in Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus said this, his disciples came to him and they were asking him a question. Listen to what this says in 18 verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a, a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So we, we worked at length through that a few months ago uh, and just really tried to lay this groundwork and establish this fact that the disciples, for one, were asking the wrong question. And, and certainly in their minds, they, they had the wrong answer. Certainly in their minds, they were thinking that Jesus was going to call out one of them and say, well, let me, let me, you know, come here, Peter. Let me use you as an example as to what the greatest in the kingdom looks like. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he, he, he shocks them. He does something that's absolutely unbelievable, especially in his society, his culture. And he pulls a little child in his midst and says that the prerequisite for getting into the kingdom, for even being a member of the kingdom of heaven, is to become like a little child. I remember in, in talking about that, we weren't talking about children being exemplary in their character or, or displaying any special qualities. Rather, it's their, their inabilities. It's their, their neediness, their dependence that Jesus is talking about. And so with this kind of loops us back around here, here in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, where we hit again on this reality about children being exemplary for what it looks like to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, we're going to work through this in two parts. Number one, we're going to look at re uh, rejecting the blessing of children. And then number two, we're going to look at recovering the blessing of children. So that's our, our framework for this morning Let's work through it. Number one, rejecting the blessing of children. Let's just read this text again. Here in Matthew 19, there in verse 13, it says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. 
So the picture that Matthew gives us here of his disciples is interesting, and it's certainly not flattering. Okay, what's, what's interesting about this is that the, the disciples at this point, they basically take on the role of the Pharisees, okay? So remember, we've been working through this, this text, and in, in what we saw previously in the previous paragraph is that the, the Pharisees come, and their, their question is an attempt to trap Jesus. And though the disciples at this moment aren't specific or exact in that, this is in essence what they're doing, right? In, in, in not allowing the little children to come to Jesus, they're in essence taking on this role of the Pharisees here, testing Jesus, though probably unintentionally, with their rejection of the children. Okay? Now, we know this, that children in Jesus's culture were just about as low as a person could be on the social ladder, okay? Uh, Greco-Roman society was all about trying to, to make the next step up in the social arena. Right? And children were the lowest of the low. And, and children really had no abilities in and of themselves to do anything to be able to get any farther up the ladder. They really were, in essence, nothing. I think my imagination says that they were to be seen and not heard. Right. And so you would have just little children running around all over the place, needed to be quiet, needed to leave mom and dad alone, and certainly didn't need to bug Jesus. Right. And so I think we have to ask, well, why did the disciples reject them so harshly? Well, a couple of reasons. First, they were simply going along with the social norm, which, by the way, is not what disciples of Jesus should do. Right. It's not our call to just go along with the social norms, but this is exactly what they were doing. And so it was, it was what they knew. We don't want to give them too much of a hard time for that. And they're learning at this point, right? But, but more than that, they understood Jesus to be someone who had more important things to do. And so they didn't, they didn't want Jesus to be bothered. They didn't, they didn't want the Messiah to be hindered. I think the question that they're asking themselves, and, and really, we have to understand that the disciples think they're helping right now. They think they're helping Jesus to accomplish what they think Jesus came to do. And so for them, they don't want the Messiah to be hindered. What place do children have with the one who's supposed to overthrow the Roman Empire? I remember, that's the expectation of the messianic figure, someone who's going to come, who's going to overthrow with power and authority Roman rule and oppression. How's a kid going to help with that? And so the disciples' only logical response in this regard is to say, wow, we need to keep these children away from Jesus. But I think a greater problem is being exposed here, and it's this. It's that the disciples are rejecting the blessing or the gift of children. Now, I think that this is a problem that we still have today. Believe it or not. Uh, now we have, you know, lots of kiddos in here. Depending on the week, we have lots more kiddos. I think, we, I think last week we had over 60 kids downstairs is what I was told, it was, which is amazing. It's a huge blessing. Uh, it's one of my favorite, you know, Sundays when we have all the kids in here and then we dismiss all the kids and it sounds like a herd of elephants wandering through the sanctuary. It's beautiful. And, and certainly, as a, as a culture, like by and large, right, we've, we've come a long way when it comes to children. I think in many ways we probably have, but perhaps maybe not as far as we think. And, um, 
you know, I, I, I just maybe take a moment, regardless of wh- where you're at, your, your life stage. Like maybe, you know, married and you have a bunch of kids, or maybe you're married and you don't have kids, and you're debating whether or not you should have kids, or maybe you're, you're single and you hope to one day be married and to have kids, or maybe you're single and you hope to one day not be married and not have kids. Whatever your space may be, right, just take a moment to just kind of think to yourself, what is your perspective on children? Just, like, be honest with your heart and your mind. What is your perspective? Because here's the... Here's the reality, and this, we're going we're gonna to kind of, we're going to push in a little bit here, and we might feel a little bit uncomfortable. This is interesting. Talking about children to me is way more challenging than talking about sex. <laughs> I feel like put, talking about children, like, it really starts to push on some, some idols, and so that's what we're going to kind of press in a little bit. Bear with me, okay? Um, I think we are perhaps more avoidant today of children than ever. And, and here's, here's where we see this play out. Culturally, we just want them to be out. Right? Like I, I, I grew up in home. Maybe I was just a pain in the butt. I'm not sure. I probably was. I, I remember hearing frequently, like, my parents were just longing for the day I was going to turn 18 and move out of the house. And eventually I was too, right? But, but this, is, this is what we have. Like, we have this, like, cultural pressure and push that says that, you know, you do your thing and you get to a certain age and then you just have to like, get them out the door. And so everything is about getting them out the door. My daughter jokes frequently that she's going to live in our house forever. And at this point, I'm happy to have her live in our house forever. <laughs> There's just this like desire for them to be gone, right? Separated from everything. And this sadly carries itself into the church. Now, I want you to notice again that we have children in here with us this morning. For the most part, that's intentional. We need more volunteers for Taproot Kids, always. <laughs> but there's also, with, within the way that we want to, to live life as a church, there's intentionality behind us having little people in our gatherings with us. Because here's, here's where the church, and, and we'll circle back around to this, but here's where the church has often gone off, I think, is we have tended to do everything that we can to separate people out into their various age categories and never actually incorporate them into the life of the church, right? So I I think we exist in this world which we can all acknowledge that most, you know, uh, teenagers, they get to the point of hitting a certain age and then they leave the church, right? What What if they're not leaving what if it's actually that we just communicated that they were never apart? Like, I, I think it's a big shift in, in our, our paradigm. And I think it, it's, it's where we have to ask, like, what are we actually communicating to children? And, and for those of you children in here who are with us, like, I, I want you to hear that we love you and we want you to be apart and we're glad that you exist. And we don't want to push you away. We want you to understand yourselves as part of this church family now. I remember uh, a church that I was a part of a long time ago. I'll pick on it a little bit. And uh, 
you know, I was, I was part of the leadership of this church, and one of the things that they, they did, they, uh, children were not allowed in the gatherings, like not allowed in the sanctuary at all, uh, spe- specifically babies, because we know, we know how babies can be, right? And just so you know, if you have a baby in here, your baby is so welcome in this space. But I remember, I remember in the meeting, and man, we spent like a whole meeting one time talking about how we could navigate helping parents understand that their babies couldn't be with them during the church gathering. And uh, to the point that they, they instituted, um, I say they because I disagreed with it, they <laughs> uh, installed what they just, you know, in the background called baby bouncers. Baby bouncers in the church, y'all. Like, and I would hope that you're like, no, that's, that's, a, that's not right. You're right. It's not right. Like, it, it, it begins to communicate a very anti-Jesus reality about ch- children. And so, sadly, there's just this, this reality, this assessment of our culture that says, man, children are still frustrating, and they're still in our way, and we always need to find a way to get them out. And that's just not the way of Jesus. It's also not the way of the story of Scripture. We have to remember that the first words of God's blessing to humans after the creation of humans was what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The idea there is really fruitful. It's in the Hebrew, I'm sure. Lots of kids, lots of little blessings. That's the first command, in essence, that is given. Um, Kevin DeYoung, he is a, uh, he's a, a pastor in North Carolina, I believe is where he pastors. He recently wrote an article uh, earlier this month that uh, was released onto the website called First Things. And I ran across this article this past week through a podcast, and it was super timely. And the article is called The Case for Kids. And DeYoung makes the case that just about every society in the world today is having fewer children than ever before, like in, in, in the span of human civilization. And he states that this is also the case among Christians, and it ought not be that way. And so here's, here's what he says. I'm going to quote him quite a bit here this morning. Uh, But he says this, he says that the most significant thing happening in the world may very well be a thing that is not happening. Men and women are not having children. The biblical logic has been reversed, and the barren womb has said enough. The paradigmatic affliction of the Old Testament is now the great desire of the nations. If Rachel wanted children more than life itself, our generation seems to have concluded that nothing gets in the way of life more than children. What DeYoung does here is he kind of, he plays around with scripture a little bit in a helpful way. And in Proverbs 30, he's referencing the fact that the barren womb is always crying out saying, I, I, want, I want a child. And he says it's flipped now. The paradigm is shifted now to where the, the barren woman is saying, no, this is good. This is okay. Uh, and then in his reference to the story of Rachel there, all he's doing is he's saying that Rachel wanted children more than anything. Like you, you just, you walk through the story there of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. It's a super jacked up story. It's crazy. 
but at the heart of it, you see Rachel just, she just wants children and she just wants her husband to notice her because of having children. And he says it's the opposite now for us today where we're, again, content with none or minimal children. Um, De Young goes on in his article and he talks about how uh, total fertility rates in the world have dropped. So it's a super interesting article. Uh, he talks about how the, the, the replacement rate for humans, does anyone know the replacement rate for humans? Pretty simple math, it's two. 2.1, <laughs> specifically. Um, is 2.1. So in other words, in order for us to just simply replace ourselves, every you know, married couple has to have 2.1 kids. I'm not sure what the point one is and uh, how you make that work, but that's, that's the numbers. That's how it works itself out. Uh, his whole point, though, is that uh, globally, this isn't happening. As a matter of fact, every, every area of the globe finds itself to be below the 2.1 rate, except for sub-Saharan Africa, uh, which, is, which is interesting. That's the only part of the, the globe that's having more kids than 2.1. Uh, in, in areas like East Asia, the rates are like abysmal. They're below 1.0. South Korea, I think, is at 0.83. Uh, Europe is down in the lower ones. The United States is at 1.73. His whole point is that if this is what continues, the nations are going to just be declining, which in the long run has massive impacts. Uh, He goes on and he says this about the numbers. He says that the reasons for declining fertility are no doubt many and varied, Surely, some couples want to have more children but are unable to do so. Others struggle with economic pressures or health limitations, but fertility does not plummet worldwide without deeper issues at play, especially when people around the world are objectively richer, healthier, and afforded more conveniences than at any time in human history. Um, Though individuals make their choices for many reasons, as a species, we are suffering from a profound spiritual sickness, a metaphysical malaise in which children seem a burden on our time and a drag on our pursuit of happiness. Our malady is a lack of faith, and nowhere is the disbelief more startling than in the countries that once made up Christendom. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. God promised a delighted Abraham in Genesis 26.4. Today, in the lands of Abraham's offspring, the blessing strikes most as a curse. Now, that probably hands lands heavy on some of our hearts. But DeYoung's whole point is this, is that humans are now choosing more than ever to not take part in one of the greatest blessings that God has allowed us to take part in. And, and his challenge and the challenge of Scripture, the challenge of Jesus would be really to assess our hearts in that. Now, yes, in some instances, there are legitimate reasons for this. So I know, I'm, I'm certain that there are some in here who maybe, who have wanted to have kids and have not been able to have kids. And for that, I have nothing to say other than I'm sorry. I know that that is a, a hurtful, painful reality that some, that some exist in. Um, 
And there can be numerous other things and you know, factors that would play into that. But in other instances, and in many instances, this is the reality, is in many instances, it's a lack of faith and or plain old disobedience and simply a desire for convenience. Right? Now, that, that's, that's a spot where we need to assess our hearts. If, if our desire is, is just to disobey, or to just live more convenient lives, which I assure you, less kids equals more convenience, then there's something that's going on there. And, and DeYoung just points out in his article that that's the reality of the whole of the globe that we now live on. Uh, it's interesting. One of the things that DeYoung highlights, because it's a question that seems to come up more and more frequently, uh, is the fear of climate crisis. So the, like the, 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 uh, the thinking is that we need to stop having kids because if we keep having kids, the climate is going to be destroyed or you know, earth is just going to disappear because all the kids are going to have to use it up, so on and so forth. I love what he says about this, though, because he speaks into it and he says this. He says, the Bible's narrative arc is not geocentric, as if the redemptive story were mainly about earth, or biocentric, as if it were mainly about plants and animals, the Bible story is anthropocentric. And, and, and un, we understand that he understands this underneath of the theocentricity of the Bible, right? He knows that the Bible is God-centric first and foremost. But, but then from that, it's, it's human-centered. God sent his son to save those made in his image. What's more, as those made in his image, we are not an alien species on the planet, malignant tumors that only devour and destroy. We are sub-creators. We are meant to tend the garden we can solve problems and make the world more inhabitable. If the climate crisis is as dire as we are told, lasting solutions will come from the efforts of our children, not their elimination. Right? So it's, it's a paradigm shift for us. And, and one that is, that is biblical. In other words, what DeYoung is getting at is that we are to teach our kids how to steward the earth. Like, like, if our concern is, is climate crisis, then we should take on the responsibility as disciples of Jesus to disciple our children and how to actually steward things and how to actually care for things, right? We're to teach them how to care for this creation long after we're gone, just as God has commanded us to do. Okay? Now, please understand as I'm working through this, I am, I'm not trying to heap up guilt or shame on us, and nor is DeYoung in his article. Uh, I, I, will, I will tell you right off, like, I am easily annoyed and exhausted by children. Right? I have, I see three of them in here this morning. Where's the fourth? Uh, he's helping in tap your kids. But no, I, I, like, honestly, right, I'm easily annoyed and exhausted by children. Is anyone else in here easily annoyed and exhausted by children? Thank you for being honest and raising your hands. Even, even you can't, can't stand them, right? Even, even those of you who don't have children, right? How many of you who don't have children are like, yeah, I'm easily annoyed and exhausted by children, right? You're, people call you like, can you help watch my kids? And you're like, ah, it's going to take a lot of effort. I, I get it. Right? I'm, I'm not trying, no one here is trying to say that, that children are easy. We're, we're not talking about some sort of like superficial delight where we're like, man, look at all my kids, they're just so awesome, mm, they make me smile all the time. No, they don't. <laughs> right? Love them to death, but man, it is hard, challenging. Children truly are inconvenient in so many ways. 
But a rejection of children is a rejection of blessing. And God does not want us to miss that. If, if, we, if we choose as disciples to, to, to reject children, first and foremost, I, we're rejecting Jesus, right? We're like, we're just straight up rejecting Jesus. And then, and then we're rejecting the blessing that God has for us in interacting with, engaging with, and loving children in the way that we see Jesus love children in this instance. The fact that Jesus' response to his disciples is a rebuke, right? And, and, and then it's a call to let the children come to me is exemplary of how we too are to engage with children. So then what might that look more like? Number two, it's supposed to say number two, there it is, recovering the blessing of children, how are we doing? Good. One person is wooing. Thank you. <laughs> Recovering the blessing. So how, how then do we recover the blessing and the gift of children, and why, why should we recover the blessing and gift of children? A couple, couple of things. Uh, number one, theologically, and then number two, practically. So this is kind of what we're going to try to work through in this. Number one, theologically. We need to understand, first and foremost, that we are children, I think that the primary invitation to us is to understand ourselves first and foremost as children of God. To to understand that because of the finished work of Jesus, because Jesus entered into human history and and lived the life that we couldn't and died the death that we should have and then rose from a grave and defeated Satan and sin and death and hell and has ascended and ruling reigning as Lord and King of the universe. It's good news, by the way. Because of that reality... We, we understand ourselves to be beloved sons and daughters, right? So our, our posture for every single one of us in here this morning is first and foremost, as a child, the, the invitation for us as disciples of Jesus is, is not to figure out how to just be like, you know, stuck up, stodgy, grumpy Christians. No, we're to be childlike, and, and, and there's, a, there's a, a joy in that. There's a, there's a fascination in that. There's an excitement in that. There is an awe in that, that we're invited into. Regularly right now, I'm having conversations with my um, 11-year-old, and his mind is just blown that there was at one point nothing, and then God said something, and then there was something. And on a regular basis, he's just like, I just can't comprehend it. And I was like, I know, buddy, it's because it's God, and you're not supposed to be able to comprehend all the things that God does. And he's like, I know, but I just don't get it. And I'm like, I know. Just meditate on that and let it just, let it compel you to be a follower of Jesus. We're to have this childlike faith. We are beloved children, right? Uh, Second, we need to be reminded of how Scripture teaches us to view children, because as disciples of Jesus, our, our desire, our intent is to be obedient to Scripture. And thankfully, Scripture has some things to tell us, right? So again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, right there at the very beginning, right? God uh, has been doing his work of creation, and then we have the creation of humans. And then he says to them, it says that God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And we'll talk about that language again in just a bit. And over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And, and so hopefully that just captures for us just this reality of blessing. That, that God has created humans to experience blessing from him and to be a blessing in our existence. And one of the primary ways in which we do that is through multiplying ourselves. And then also one that we're familiar with, Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the person who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There is just great blessing that the scriptures want to communicate to us about children. This was, an, this was a complete paradigm shift for the disciples. Right? Now, now it's, it, I think it's hard for us to comprehend because... Uh, you know, we, we live in a, a time in human history when we have medical abilities to stop having children. Right. Disciples didn't have that. Uh, so children were an inevitable reality for them. Right. Uh, but there is still just, again, this desire to, to push them away. And so Jesus is just completely reshaping the way that they are to be thinking and understanding children. And so we need to hear the teachings of Scripture on the whole, understanding that they are a blessing. And the blessing, simply put, is to multiply, not just replace. Now again, Taproot has done most exceedingly well at this, for the most part. <laughs> and so good job, and, and keep doing that. I love it. I know that we've had like a few babies recently. All that means is that we're like about to experience like a wave of babies. That's how it works. Like one happens, it's like, oh, we've got like 10 more coming. I'm sure of it. And it's exciting. Right? That's our, we, we pray that God would give us many babies and that, that we would experience the blessing of little babies. And we're out of our baby stage. And so I love to hold little people's babies and then say, here you go. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> now, here's, here, this is another area where this can push on some buttons here. Because um, I said, the blessing is to multiply, not simply replace. That is probably going to look different for, for each of us, right? It's not, and it's not my responsibility to tell you how many kids to have, okay? But if you are married, it should be your desire to have kids, I, and this, this will probably land hard. I don't, I don't think that we biblically have the right to say, I don't think I want kids. If you're married, because, because it is what God has made us to do. Now, again, there, there will be reasons. I understand that there might be reasons and scenarios for which that reality might play itself out. But I think that this, this really becomes an area in which hearts need to be assessed. Here, here's how DeYoung puts it. I thought it was helpful. Uh, he says this, I do not urge Christian couples to have as many children as possible. Neither do I. That would be crazy. But 
I do urge them to have more children. How many more? I cannot say. Many couples must weigh risks pertaining to age, illness, miscarriage, or difficult pregnancies. Please hear that. Those are very real realities that need to be taken into account. I would say also within that are, are things like finances, right? Like some of, some of us can't afford to keep having kids because they're expensive. <laughs> and, and, and the world discriminates against those who have a bunch of kids, right? Have you tried to buy a car if you have more than three kids? You have to like up the level of vehicle, which ups the level of price by like three times, like, man, this is not fair. Anyways, things you have to take into account. But, and here's, here's, here's how he kind of describes it, but more than two kids and more kids than you think you can handle might be a good place to start. And so as you're thinking, you know, we have a lot of young married couples in here. As you're thinking through what might this look like, this might be a good thing for you to assess, right? Um, again, This is not to heap guilt, but we have to assess our hearts when it comes to children. And then within that, we need to ask the question of whether or not we've stopped. And if we've stopped having children, we need to ask why we've stopped having children. And if that's permanent, then we need to also ask, how can we continue to love kiddos like Jesus does? Because I think the reality of receiving children the way that Jesus receives children doesn't just exist in the having of kids, but also caring for orphans. Uh, it's, it's stepping into the spaces of, of foster care and into that system and helping the poor and the marginalized and the rejected and the forgotten about in our society. That is a space where we as the church are supposed to step into. And if we don't step into it ourselves, I assure you that there's someone around you who probably has stepped into it and you could probably lend a helping hand, And so that might be a space in which we invite children into our lives the way that Jesus did. Because some of you are in the spot where you you can't have more kids. And so I don't want you to hear like, oh my gosh, there's guilt and all that. That, No, that's not what we're saying at all. All On the flip side though, if if your reason is just because it's inconvenient, that's an idol issue. That's an idol that needs to be ripped out, right? And so it's just a a space that we need to bring to Jesus. Um, Caring for orphans, foster care, helping single mothers, I think is another beautiful way in which the church can come alongside and just receive children the way that Jesus has received children, right? Single single parents in general. Um, So reminded of how scripture teaches us to view children. Number three, we need to remember that children are the examples of life in the kingdom. Notice what Jesus says, and notice why Jesus wants us to be engaged with and interacting with children. He says, because the kingdom belongs to such as these. And when he uses the word such, he's not saying just these specifically. He's saying that anyone who is like these, as in rejected, pushed aside, poor, marginalized of society. Uh, Bruner, in his commentary, puts it like this. According to Jesus, the dependent, unable, helpless, passive, and weak are the real citizens of the heavenly kingdom. These are different people from those whom we usually allow to enter our kingdoms or clubs. Those whom instinct disqualifies, Jesus qualifies. 
In other words, there are just massive implications for us to understand this, not just with little children, but on a broader scope. We have to understand, like, who do we want to see in the kingdom? Because we have a tendency to to kind of have this this picture and this idea and this ideal that doesn't often include the the poor and the marginalized of our society. Why? Because they're, they're inconvenient and messy, difficult, hard, confusing, right? needy, all of those things. Right? And, and the reality, though, is, is like, that's the case for us as well. Right? Like, that's, that's the place where Jesus is, is wanting to, to bring us, is to understand our own neediness, right? to understand... Um, that we cannot do anything on our own to earn God's favor, right? But that it's freely given to us in and through Jesus' finished work, right? And so Jesus wants us to, to embrace this reality for ourselves, right? This, this reality that, like, before, before God, we are, we are this. We are unable. We are dependent. We are helpless. We are passive. We are weak, but these are those who are blessed over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. And so it's, it's in this reality that we, we simply receive the love of the Father. And as I already talked about, children, are, they're object lessons of faith. Right? Uh, we can learn much about faith from children. Again, my 11-year-old and just the conversations that we're having on a regular basis right now and just the, the joy that exudes from him and the curiosity and the questions, which are so, so hard. Like, they're so hard. Most often, like, the, the kid comes and asks a question. I'm like, My, really? Like, do we have to talk about this question? Like, it's so hard. But there's just such an intentionality to his young faith. Not only are children object lessons of faith, they're also master sanctifiers of their parents. If we'll receive it, right? Like, I think the reality is that few things will drive us to prayer and dependence more than children. Amen. Thank you. So we need to remember that children are examples of life in the kingdom. And then fourth, we need to see children as key to our disciple-making, um, the way that God intended for his kingdom to grow is through slow, steady, patient disciple-making. Right? Slow, steady, patient Disciple making. And this is, um, this is made clear in scripture. This is also made clear, there's a really good book that I, I would just love for all of you to just read. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And you're saying, why should I read it? Well, because the title's awesome for one. <laughs> and the content is even more awesome. So, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. And the subtitle is The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. 
And, and here's, here's, what he, here's what he does in this book. He, he talks about how... Um, he talks about how the church grew by insane numbers to the point that by the third century, the, the Roman Empire was, it was an empire that had become Christian in essence. And so his, his question that he asks in the book is, how did this happen? Because through the first couple of centuries of, of the movement of the church, uh, she was massively persecuted. And, and, and actually what he does is, it's really interesting, the, the model of evangelism, if you will, was not that at all. Like, it was nearly impossible to get into the church in the first few centuries of the church. Like, they were shutting doors, and they weren't letting people in unless you really showed that you were a disciple of Jesus, because they kept letting people in, and guess what happened? They kept killing them. Right? And so the Christians kept getting killed. And so like, man, we've got to figure out something. And then not only that, but because of the intense persecution, the church was constantly asking this question, how do we help Christians not waver in their faith? And I think that's a question that we need to continue to ask, is how do we help disciples of Jesus not waver in their faith? Right? And so his, 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 uh, his assessment of how the church grew was through this patient ferment of the church, to where here's, here's the vision that he, he gives of what the church looked like, and uh, we'll get to our, our point here, but he says this, he says, quote, outsiders became Christians because, for example, they observed the patient way that Christians did business with them. We have observed some pagans who found their own rituals unsatisfactory and were willing to consider, consider alternative approaches that Christians embodied. We have seen outsiders expressing amazement at the confident behavior of Christian women and wondering uh, at the source of their power. We have seen outsiders who heard rumors of spiritual power that occurred in Christian gatherings, and we have watched as outsiders observed that Christians had distinctive ways of living, burying their poor, refusing to expose unwanted infants, not swearing oaths. Non-Christians observed Christians and scrutinized them. They were aware of the Christian's character and behavior. In other words, what Kreider assesses is this, is that the church in her earliest days was so distinct in the way that she lived that the outside world was continually scrutinizing and found the ways of Christians to be better than what they had experienced or lived. And so they were, they were compelled by these people who were living for and obeying Jesus. Because there was, there was a sharp distinction in the way that they did the entirety of their lives. And I love how, I love how Kreider just goes through like business, right? like normal everyday stuff. Uh, the empowering of, of women, in other words, the poor and marginalized in the first century, in the first couple of centuries, to where people are like, how, what is happening? How are things changing? And so Tertullian, he was, uh, he was a... a father of the faith in the first couple hundred centuries. I'm not exactly sure when, so I just, you know, broadly, a couple hundred, there you go. Um, he said that he, in his observation of, of what the people were saying was this, it was look how they love one another and how they are ready to die for each other. And so the question then is why did Christians behave as they did? Like why did this happen? And, and why did the church multiply the way that it did? The, 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 the conclusion is this, is because they were taught. 
They were taught how to do this. Again, Tertullian's observation was this, is that Christians are made, not born. I love it. You should write that down. Christians are made, not born. In other words, the church grew not through an elaborate method of evangelism or, or just this sense of needing to hurry or some sort of like rapture theology scare tactics. She grew through deep discipleship. She grew through the practice of catechism. Right? Like there's all sorts of cool church history stuff we could go into. Don't worry, we won't do it this morning. But one of the key ways in which the church became as grounded as she did in the midst of heavy persecution was because they were constantly being catechized. That's why we've tried to incorporate this into our gatherings. Like, just so we know, it's not just so we can get information. It's so that we can be grounded in sound faith, so we can be grounded in sound doctrine, so that when the world is telling us to do and go all of these different ways, that we have like a, a grounding in the, the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and how the church is to live in this world. And so this is then the reality that we want to embrace. Like, how do we see the church continue to multiply throughout the generations? We disciple our kids. Right? We disciple our kids. Uh, it's interesting. I can't remember if it's in Kreider's book or if it's in the article or where it is. Somewhere out there, I heard it, I read it, I know that I did. What the assessment was was that if one family... If one family took seriously and was intentional to disciple one other non-Christian family, that that would have massive implications on the expansion of the kingdom. Just one. Like if just one family that has like four, you know, five, six, seven, eight, whatever, how many kids, disciples one other family and that continues to, to multiply itself out, that has massive implications for the kingdom. And it's not, it's not like, it's not flashy, right? Like Taproot, we're, like, we're probably never going to be the church that does like the whole altar call thing and gets like 15 people saved in one morning. I know that that looks sexy. I don't know how long it lasts. Like I don't know what it does in helping us remain a deep, long disciple-making presence in this city, in this valley. And, and that's what we're aiming for. What does it look like to be a, a disciple-making presence for generations to come? Like, like that, that my kids, grandkids would see and be a part of. Right? Like we have to stop thinking like just in front of us. But beyond that. And so here's, here's the question to ask is, are we being a faithful witness? And I, I just, I love that language because it's the, the language of the New Testament. Like, are, are we, as a church, are we a compelling witness to the world around us as Jesus is compelling? Are, are we a people who are teaching our kids to push back darkness in the power of Jesus? Remember, remember in Genesis, uh, verse 28, the, the command is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to do what? Subdue it and to have dominion. Those are really interesting words. Uh, and, and, and 
the word dominion has more of the connotation of, of stewardship and a caring. The word subdue, though, is really interesting, and it's actually really violent. Right? And, and I think that the word is indicative of the fact that there is a war that's going on. And part of our responsibility as parents or as a church family who has children all around us is to teach people how to push back darkness, right? how to not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Right? That's, what that, that's what that command is getting at. And so we have to ask that question, are we, are we doing that? Okay? All right, let's get to wrapping this up. Practically, practically, here, here we go. Uh, a few things. Children need to not become idols of our hearts. Right? Uh, often, well, here, let, let, let's say this. It is not our job to pander to our children's every desire. So this is like practical parenting help. <laughs> part of the reason, part of the reason, bear with me, receive this with humility, okay? Part of the reason parenting can be so hard is because you want to give your kid everything that they ask for. You're just going to create little demons if you do that. So don't do that. Okay? We, are, we are not to allow them become the idols in which we worship because they will let us down, right? They need instructed. They need trained. And if we don't do this, then it will become incredibly overwhelming to embrace children with joy. So they need not become idols of our heart. Number two, in Taproot, I just want to point this out. In Taproot, our kiddos are being taken through Scripture regularly and repeatedly in Taproot Kids. Uh, we use a curriculum called the Gospel Project, which just continues to cycle them throughout the entire story of the Bible. Right? And I, I, again, I want to say, this is a space where we could always use more help. Right? Um, the way I like to talk about Taproot Kids is this, is I, I don't need you to pray about being called to Taproot Kids. If, if you're a part of the church, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called. No, it might just be for a season. And, and, you're, and, and yes, it will, like, like, you'll often not feel good in the midst of it. And you'll often get yourself to a point of wondering, like, is Mike ever going to shut up and stop? Like, last week was so fun. I was like, I was telling someone, I said, you know, yeah, they, you know, we went for like an hour and 15 minutes. I talked for an hour and 15 minutes answering questions, and, and someone said it felt like it was 15 minutes, and then someone said, that's not how it felt in Tap Your Kids. <laughs> and I was like, sorry. But that is a space in which we want to provide more age-appropriate, age-considered teaching on a regular basis, while at the same time always understanding that our kids are welcome here. And that we are intentional in having our kiddos here in this space to worship with us, to see how their parents worship, to see, how, to see that they're a part of this church family. Okay? But on top of this, okay, not, only, not only do we have Taproot Kids, we need to understand that Taproot Kids is not the primary disciple-making space for our children. Your home is. And I just, this is so important because it's so easy. It's so easy to just kind of be like, well, I'm, you know, 
we're gonna hand you off to the professionals and they're gonna teach you about Jesus and then, and then we sit passively by at our homes and our kids don't hear anything about Jesus. Right? And so again, just like a subtle, not subtle, a real challenge. Like, are we regularly learning ourselves to notice the beauty and the glory and the splendor of the God who created all that there is? And, and, and learning how to draw our kids' attention to, to the way that the starlings flock in the wintertime and how God designed that. Or how the, the snow covers the mountains and it's absolutely beautiful and it's pointing to our creator. I mean, there's, just, there's just so many ways in which we can learn how to, to draw our children into our own space of awe and our relationship with the Father. And this needs to primarily take place in our homes. Now, a few things that would maybe be helpful for you. I'm just going to give you a little list. The New City Catechism. Like 52 weeks. One question a week is how that's designed. And there are answers for both adults and kids. And if as an adult you find the adult answers too hard, just do the kids. Right? I'm always frustrated at the catechism because my kids remember them way faster than I do way faster. Uh, but it's so helpful to just work regularly through the New City Catechism. So, that, you know, we're trying to, we'll probably do it again next year um, as a church. We're, we're trying to help as a, as a whole, we're trying to help us all get into a rhythm and routine of doing this. Um, something that we've had a lot of fun with this year that we just started in the school year is there's this book. It's called The Ology. Yep, write it down. You know you do. Okay, and it has really cool, that's not a good one, <sighs> drawings, <laughs> beautiful drawings, pictures, I didn't, what's wrong with the coat? <laughs> that was good. Anyways, this is, this is essentially a systematic theology for children, um, and, it's, and it's, it's fun because it works with all age levels. So, I mean, we have, we have a six-year-old in our house up to a 14-year-old in our house, and we're using it with, with all of them. Uh, and what's helpful is at the back of this, there's questions that to kind of prompt discussion, and there's also answers uh, within those. And you can kind of go as, as far as you want with that. But this has been our, our Monday night thing. We sit down, and I'll read two chapters usually, and then my kids just start firing off questions that are impossible for me to answer. It's loads of fun. Um, another one that's super helpful is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Right? I mean, we just, we can't recommend that enough. And, and that's not only for kids, that's for all y'all. Okay? Like if, if, you're, if you're in a space where you're newer to being a follower of Jesus or you're curious about the story of Jesus, read the Storybook Bible. Because it's going to help you understand the whole of the story and how it's all pointing to Jesus. Greatly beneficial. Um, another resource that is really helpful, this one in particular is for teenagers, it's called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, and it's by Rebecca McLaughlin, and she's, um, I mean, she's just a becoming, has become kind of a leading apologist more recently and does a really good job at uh, working through hard questions, and so that would probably be a helpful resource. And then I also just, I can't, I can't not mention the Bible Project, I mean, they're cartoon videos, guys. Animated, like, how would we not enjoy that, as, right? Everyone should just enjoy those and your mind will be blown by those. So let me, 
This is, there's so many reasons for us to look to as we disciple our kiddos in our home. Now, here's, here's the thing that I want us to understand. Um, we want our kids to have our faith. I remember, you know, kind of the, the whole, this like tension, like we live in a world in which teenagers grow up and then they, they leave the church, right? They have like the first opportunity they have to leave the church, they do. And then the, the way that we kind of make ourselves feel good is like, well, they need to go and discover, you know, their faith for themselves. Can I just ask, like, how's that working? It's not great. Here's the deal. I want my kids to have my faith. And you want your kids to have your faith. Because here's the thing, and, and yes, we want them to experience it for themselves. I'm not saying that that's not true. We want them to experience the love of the Father for themselves, but it's our responsibility to pass that down. Right? This is the story of Scripture. Right. Read through the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, and over and over and over again, I mean, read through the whole thing. There are these references to this story of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is a constant reference to one story, to one particular reality, to one particular faith that is intended to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. We do not want it to change. We, we do not want our young people to come up with something different. It will not be effective. It will not work. It will not sustain them. We want them to know Yahweh. Right? And so we unashamedly, boldly proclaim this story. And when they have questions, I don't want to say, well, you should go do some research. I hope you can figure it out for yourself. No, I want to be equipped. I want you to be equipped to say, man, let's, let's open the book. I don't, I don't know the answers, but I'll sure do my best to find and help you out. Do you know what, like, that, that approach of humility as parents would just go so far. If we can just say, I don't, man, I'm sorry, Denny, that's a really hard question. I don't know. And maybe it's unanswerable in some way, shape, or form, but let's, let's try to work through it. We want our kids to have our faith. We want our kids to understand that they are the church now, not the church of tomorrow. Right? Because we want to be, by God's grace, a disciple-making presence in this city, in this valley, for generations to come. Okay. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you demonstrate to us just this incredible love for children. And I pray, yeah, I pray that we are challenged in our, our hearts this morning that idols would be rooted out and that we would find you, Jesus, to be more and most satisfying. And that we would just, yeah, learn how to navigate this life with, with children regardless of where our season may be, um, that we would see the blessing that, that kiddos are and the blessing that it is to, to be in a space on Sunday mornings where we, we hear the, the cries and, and the laughs of little babies.
and we get to hear the, uh, the pounding of the many footsteps as they go to tap your kids and uh, get to enjoy teaching them and, and hearing their questions and interacting with them and just engaging and, and learning. And I pray that we would have just a shift, a paradigm shift to see children as you see children. And, and more than anything, that we would live in light of the reality that you, you call us beloved children. You call us beloved sons and daughters. And that you are a father who delights in us. You are not annoyed by our neediness. You're not annoyed by our questions. You're not frustrated at how long it might take us to, to get it. But you're patient and you're loving and you're, you're steadfast always. So may we just worship you in light of that reality. It's in your good name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.